The time has come when advertising has, in some hands, reached the status of a science. It is based on fixed principles and is reasonably exact. The causes and effects have been analyzed until they are well understood. The correct methods of procedure have been proved and established. We know what is most effective and we act on basic law. Advertising, once a gamble, has become, under able direction, one of the safest business ventures. Certainly, no other enterprise with comparable possibilities need involve so little risk. Therefore, this book deals not with theories and opinions, but with well-proven principles and facts. It is written as a textbook for students and a safe guide for advertisers. The book is confined to establish fundamentals. That is from Claude Hopkins' classic book, Scientific Advertising. Claude Hopkins is considered one of the forefathers of the advertising world. He's a legend in the advertising world because he wrote this book a hundred years ago and it still has held the test of time. He demonstrated in the book these methods behind scientific advertising, which was back then in an era when no one would really track their spending or their advertising results. He would view it much more like a science. He would track ads, their conversions, and understand what's the ROI on my ads, running different A-B tests, different methods that could improve his ads results. A few of his famous case studies that we'll talk about today include getting the US, the entire nation, to care about brushing their teeth in his famous Pepsodent ad and marketing Schlitz beer in Campbell's tomato soup to many of the masses of consumers as well. So we're going to go through a ton of his amazing insights across advertising that deal with finding your ideal customer, giving out samples, the value of samples, and converting people through some of these very simple strategies. I'm so excited to jump right into Claude Hopkins' legendary book, Scientific Advertising. When Hopkins joined the Lord and Thomas Advertising Agency in 1907, Campbell's Tomato Soup was his first account, and he successfully advertised a number of products for them. His adverts were driven by research, and he knew the importance of developing advertising which was based on consumer desires. The approach brought considerable returns, with Lord and Thomas growing from less than $1 million in billings in 1898 to $6 million in 1910, and in 1924, they stood at $14 million. So we are seeing here, Claude Hopkins is a legend in the advertising world. He started off with Campbell's Tomato Soup. It was his first account, and he's going to go on and take on some of these huge national accounts across the United States. His ideas are going to impact many advertisers for generations to come, like David Ogilvie, who's someone we're going to be discussing and studying in future episodes. So one of the most basic theories that Claude Hopkins would emphasize was that advertising is multiplied salesmanship. Here's what he meant by that. Advertising is salesmanship. Its principles are the principles of salesmanship. The only purpose of advertising is to make sales. It is profitable or unprofitable according to its actual sales. It is not primarily to aid your other salesman. Treat it as a salesman, its own salesman. Force it to justify itself. Compare it with other salesmen. Figure its cost and result. And to him, the main benefit 
of successful advertising is this idea that it's salesmanship at scale. Advertising is multiplied salesmanship. It may appeal to thousands while the salesman talks to one. I think that's a very powerful idea. Advertising is multiplied salesmanship. We are looking at salesmanship, but here it is at scale. And I think there's a little bit of a reversion if you're the one selling to really sell your products because you don't want to be kind of labeled as the used car salesman like. We spoke about this during the soundtracks episode. This was a fear that that author, John Acuff, had when he was trying to sell his own books. He would kind of realize that he's passionate about his books and he's this entrepreneur. He wants to tell people about his books, but he feels like this used car salesman kind of pushing products onto people that they may not actually want. And what's really important to remember, I think it's something that Hopkins emphasizes and certainly John Acuff emphasizes, is to reshift our own internal dialogues, our internal soundtracks to one where the advertising, the products we're pushing out are things that could actually benefit other people's lives. John Acuff, his soundtrack would be, you're somebody's Lego. You are of value to somebody else. People love to be recommended cool new products or useful things that will improve their life. So I think both these things hand in hand are what forms the core mentality of a successful advertiser. One is advertising is multiplied salesmanship. What you're doing is you are selling the products, judging your ability to sell that product at scale. And it's the internal belief that your product will really benefit the end consumer. How will the end consumer benefit from using your product? So these form the foundation of Claude Hopkins' advertising mentality. So I now want to tell you about Hopkins' most famous ad campaign, which was Pepsodent Toothpaste. Basically, the way I understand it is at the time, in the early 1900s, most of America didn't care about brushing their teeth. They simply didn't care about their teeth. There wasn't this natural habit like today to brush your teeth every day. And the big revelation was that Claude Hopkins was able to get all of America practically to care about brushing their teeth. So you're probably asking, how did he do that? How did he increase the brushing rates across all of America? I think it was like from less than 20% of people who would regularly brush their teeth to something like over 80% after his famous Pepsodent ads. So basically, what Claude Hopkins would do was that he would focus on our simple desires. He would focus on the simple human cravings that we all have. He would say, a toothpaste may tend to prevent decay. It may also beautify teeth. Tests will probably show that the latter appeal is many times as strong as the former. The most successful toothpaste advertiser never features tooth troubles in his headlines. Tests have proved them unappealing. So what he would do instead, he would appeal to our desire for beauty. He would appeal to our desire to have a nice, pretty, clean smile. And people, they oftentimes really care about their looks. They may not care as much about those preventative health measures, like brushing your teeth, preventing decay, but we certainly all care about our looks. We certainly all have this desire to be beautiful, to be considered attractive by others, to find a mate. So this is really what Claude Hopkins realized that he has to leverage. The ways that he would do that is that he would go do this deep research and discover what makes teeth unattractive. And the way he described it in his ads is that he would describe this gross film. It was like a film. It was this dirty creature 
that would sit and live on your teeth. It sounds so visceral, something you could literally touch and see, this disgusting film. And then he would describe how the toothpaste clears up all the film, it removes the film, and it gives you this beautiful smile, this clean, beautiful smile. So he appeals to our beauty desire by removing the disgusting creature, the film, and having this end smile. And that's how we're able to get that human emotion, that human craving that we really want. He would notice that it goes beyond even just appealing to the basic desire, where Claude Hopkins would even try to show what you will gain if you get that initial desire. So he would explain, Picturing beautiful women admired and attractive is a supreme inducement, but there is great advantage in including a fascinated man. Women desire beauty largely because of men. Then show them using their beauty as women do use it to gain maximum effect. We are seeing from Claude Hopkins, it's more than just showing the product and appealing to that beauty desire but it goes even further than that. This is the human emotion we're all craving. We want to feel attractive to others. It's the other species. So not only is he just showing a pretty girl smiling, but he's also showing the man who's looking at this woman and saying, wow, I find this person attractive. So if a woman is seeing this ad, she may think that's exactly what I want. We are looking for this appeal that we all have, whether it is status or beauty, whatever the desire is, how can we convey this to the end customer? So once Hopkins is able to get these customers intrigued with that simple desire, the next step that he takes to push towards real action is by using the word free. He uses both samples and coupons to get people to first try the product And then he'll see over time that those trials will vastly pay off. So this was the example using a 10-day coupon with the Pepsodent ad. With every application, Pepsodent combats the teeth's great enemies in new and efficient ways. To millions, it is bringing cleaner, safer, whiter teeth. Send the coupon for a 10-day tube. Note how clean the teeth feel after using. Mark the absence of the vicious film. That's the disgusting creature, the vicious film. See how teeth whiten as the film coat disappears. This will be a revelation. Make it now. Cut out the coupon so you won't forget. So Claude Hopkins, he really pioneered the use of these free samples and coupons. He saw that there's so much value in offering this small upfront sample because then people try it, they already have that deep-held desire, and then they see the actual value of the product and they become lifelong customers. He shows how some people may be on the fence, but that simple sample is what gets them over the fence. A sample gets action. The reader of your ad may not be convinced to the point of buying, but he is ready to learn more about the product that you offer. So he cuts out a coupon, lays it aside, and later mails it or presents it. Without that coupon, he would soon forget. And thus, he would not be a customer. The sample gets action. He sees that these samples are so valuable because of simply the word free. When we think about that word free, this is something we discussed on the Predictably Irrational episode by Dan Ariely. The word free is so powerful for getting customers to try things. When you hear the word free, you're just like, oh, if it's free, yeah, I'll take one. I'll sign up. I'll try it. And then you try it and you may realize this is a great product. I want to continue buying it. Ariely, he had this great quote about the word free. He would say, Want to draw a crowd? Make something free. Want to sell more products? Make part of the purchase free. Customers would respond to the allure of free like starving people 
at a buffet. What a great quote. And this is certainly what Hopkins experienced as well. Samples serve numerous valuable purposes. They enable one to use the word free in ads. That often multiplies readers. Most people want to learn about any offered gift. Tests often show that samples pay for themselves, perhaps several times over, in multiplying the readers of your ads without the additional cost of space. And I think in our modern day, it may be even easier to offer these free samples now, especially if you're operating in internet-based or software-based business, because those are the businesses with zero marginal costs. So if you're able to offer this free product for a limited amount of time or a reduced feature type of product, like the Spotify light models, or you think of trials, Netflix and YouTube TV, all these companies, different companies have certain trials. You're able to come and try the product. Then you see, wow, I love this streaming product, or it's so convenient to have my music, all the songs on my phone, on all my applications easily. And thus you never end up canceling it. This is basically the value we see from free products. As we know, customers would respond to the allure of free like starving people at a buffet. They're willing to try the product without even thinking about it. And then once you try the product, you may gain this lifelong customer. So to build on this, the next core insight of the book is to find your ideal customer and offer service. And specifically, when we're talking about these samples, we don't necessarily want to just be giving samples to everyone in that approach, kind of spraying and praying. Instead, we want to find the subsets of people who are our ideal customer, these very interested individuals, and those are the people we want to market to. Those are the people we want to offer these samples that could lead to lifelong customers. So Hopkins would say, give samples to interested people only. Give them only to people who exhibit that interest by some effort. Give them only to people whom you have told your story. First, create an atmosphere of respect, a desire, an expectation. When people are in that mood, your sample will usually confirm the qualities you claim. Samples sometimes seem to double advertising costs. They often cost more than the advertising itself. Yet, rightly used, they almost invariably form the cheapest way to get customers. And that is what you want. When I read this, I just thought of some of Danny Meyer's wisdom. This is paraphrasing, but certainly applies to some of his life lessons. It may seem expensive in the short term to gain these regular customers. Like in his case, he would sometimes offer free dishes or this above and beyond experience to new guests who would dine at his restaurants. But he saw that even this high cost in the short term, if it leads to a regular, someone who comes back to his restaurant repeatedly every week or even twice a week, then that more than pays off over time. The word of mouth growth, them telling their friends, them coming consistently to his restaurants over years and years, it more than pays off over time. And I think Claude Hopkins, he is coming up with a similar core insight. He is seeing that if you find the right people, these interested people, the ideal customer, and you give them the sample, even though it may be very expensive upfront in the short term, it may even cost more than the advertising, long term, it can lead to these great results. It can lead to that customer who tells all their friends and keeps coming back. Now, the first step is finding who our ideal customer is. As Hopkins would say, don't think of people in the mass. That gives you a blurred view. Think of a typical individual, man or woman, who is likely to want what you sell. 
Don't try to be amusing. Money spending is a serious matter. Don't boast, for all people resent it. Don't try to show off. Do just what you think a good salesman should do with the half-sold person before him. So his advice is basically, acts like you're talking to one person in front of you. It is me talking to you, and I'm trying to sell you a half-sold but certainly interested person on this great product. And the way you do that is, again, you appeal to those natural, very simple desires. You describe how they will be better, what they will gain from using your product. As Hopkins would say, remember, the people you address are selfish, as we all are. They care nothing about your interests or your profit. They seek service for themselves. Ignoring this fact is a common mistake and a costly mistake in advertising. Ads say, in effect, buy my brand. Give me the trade you give to others. Let me have the money. That is not a popular appeal. The best ads ask no one to buy. The ads are based entirely on service. They offer wanted information. They cite advantages to users. That's probably the most important line. They cite advantages to users. How will the customer, this ideal customer, interested customer that you found, be better with your product? So now that you've targeted your ideal customer, the next step is thinking about how you could distinguish yourself from your competitors. Claude Hopkins has some very valuable insights here. How strongly are your rivals entrenched? There are some fields which are almost impregnable. They so dominate a field that one can hardly hope to invade it. They have the volume and the profit to make a tremendous fight. We must consider individuals, typical people who are using rival brands. A man on a Pullman, for instance, using his favorite soap. What could you say to him in person to get him to change to yours? We cannot go after thousands of men until we learn how to win one. So we're seeing him repeat here, speak to the one individual, the one ideal customer, and you have to prove to them, why should they switch to you? As Danny Meyer likes to say, what makes yours, what makes ours different and special? In the way that Claude Hopkins was able to constantly show people that his advertised products were different and special compared to his peers was that he would kind of buck against conventional wisdom. We know Bill Walsh is saying conventional wisdom produces conventional results. Well, Claude Hopkins, he would go against conventional wisdom and convey his ads in ways that none of his peers were doing. Some say, be very brief. People will read for little. Would you say that to a salesman with a prospect standing before him? Would you confine him to a certain number of words? That would be an unthinkable handicap. So in advertising, the only readers we get are people whom our subject interests. No one reads ads for amusement, long or short. Consider them as prospects standing before you, seeking for information. Give them enough to get action. He's describing here how many of his advertiser peers back in the day, a hundred plus years ago, they would have this generic wisdom to write brief ads. Short ads are the ones that are going to appeal to customers. And he saw this and he thought, that doesn't make that much sense. If I find my ideal customer, they want to know all the information, all the ways that they could benefit from my product. So he went against conventional wisdom. He decided to write much longer ads than what was standard at the time. And he was able to find great success in taking 
this counterintuitive approach. One great example that he gave one of his portfolio companies was this company called Schlitz Beer. In Schlitz Beer, during the time that he was the advertising man for the beer company, it became the number one selling beer across the United States because of his detailed and long-form ads. So I want to read here a few lines, one passage of that ad. He took out actually a full-page length ad, but I want to read one passage. You can see the level of detail that he describes for the beer, the process of making the beer in the ad. And this will show you how Claude Hopkins was able to be so successful. The beer is cooled by dripping over frigid pipes in air as pure as humans' means can make it. And that's but one extreme. Before the beer comes to this room, it is brewed in airtight cauldrons. After it leaves here, it is filtered, then sterilized. Absolute cleanliness all through. Not another article of your food or drink is the subject of such caution. But beer is saturine. Any impurity would multiply in it and make the beer unhealthful. It is by such extremes as we show you that we maintain the reputation of Schlitz beer for absolute purity. I think this is one of the most valuable ideas across the entire book. And I simply call this idea describing the process. When we describe the process in his form, these detailed long form articles, we show basically the immense work that goes into making this a high quality product. We can see from reading a full page length article on Schlitz beer how many great details go into making this the purest beer on the market. And anytime you're able to describe this process in detail, people are able to see that and appreciate that the details have really compounded and created a high quality product. Now you may be thinking, today we don't really interact that much with these long form text-based ads. Maybe a lot of your favorite ads are while you're scrolling Instagram or while you're watching TV. But I think there still applies this lesson of describe the process, whether it is in text or in video or in a picture format. I think to me, when I was kind of racking my brain on what are some of the modern companies that really use this describe the process technique, the first one that came to mind was Apple. When I look at Apple's product announcements, they recently announced the Vision Pro, their headset VR, AR type of product. And it was a phenomenal announcement. Anyone who watches that presentation is probably amazed by what they're showing us, this future technology. You will probably notice as you're sitting there, they have different people come and describe the new technologies in great detail. They will come up on the stage, real specialist engineers, and they will talk at length about very specific random engineering feats. Like they'll say, the micro OLED display means that each eye has a 4K TV. And now in this new Vision Pro headset, you have personalized spatial audio with ray tracing. And the average layperson, like myself, I would think maybe you as well, if you're not as technical, certainly myself, the average layperson probably doesn't understand all these intricate tech details are. But when Apple is describing the process of creating their advanced Vision Pro, we are all just sitting there and we're just thinking, these guys make cutting edge shit. This is cutting edge stuff. And I think that's the real power of this idea, describe the process. It is something Claude Hopkins was able to employ with his beer with his Pepsodent ads, with Campbell tomato soup. And it's something that we see modern day companies, even 
technology companies, the most valuable company in the world, like Apple, using today. So another really effective strategy that Claude Hopkins would use was mail-order ads. We've already discussed his use of the word free in coupons, his desire to appeal to what the customer will benefit from, and now we just spoke about his describing the process technique. And now we'll see how mail-order ads were really one of the best forms of advertising for his scientific advertising model. He would see that mail order ads were ads that could easily be tracked. You could track the conversions of who actually redeems those coupons, and you could A-B test different versions of mail order ads. I think in some ways, the modern day equivalent to mail order ads may be like direct response ads. Things like on Facebook today, when you're able to track what are the returns on ad spend from certain Instagram and Facebook ads. So he would share, some advertisers go so far as to never change their ads. Single mail order ads often run year after year without diminishing returns. So with some general ads, they are perfected ads embodying in the best way known all that one has to say. Advertisers do not expect a second reading. Their constant returns come from getting new readers. Hopkins here was able to see that once you perfect an ad, one that you've tested again and again, you've A-B tested it, you see that conversions are high, like in this case, those mail order ads, you could keep running it again and again because it constantly applies to new people. There may be new people being born each year or let's say graduating college, whatever your target market may be, new people are entering that target market every year. So he was able to see mail order ads were one of his most effective strategies because of that ability to track conversions and A-B tests. And he even saw that some of these great mail order ads are able to run exactly the same ad again and again, year in and year out. Certainly, I still receive mail order ads today. In my understanding, I think mail order ads are still considered effective today. I don't work in the advertising industry, so this is just kind of speculation as an end customer, end user. But I think if I were to hypothesize, just simply the physical presence, the physical piece of mail in your hand can sometimes make a little bit more of an impression on us than those quick digital ads that are so easy to scroll by and you get so many of them across your life. Google ads, Amazon ads, Facebook ads, they're all over and you kind of scroll by them so quickly. Whereas a mail order ad, even in today, a hundred years later, may still be effective because simply holding something in person in front of you may connote a different type of memory. You may be able to actually viscerally keep that on your counter and it creates this cognitive referent that you don't really forget about. And this is something that I think resonated with Akio Morita just a couple episodes ago when we were talking about the Sony story. He was sharing when he was trying to get his marketing in line for Sony products and appeal to the masses of customers, he noticed that simply opening their own branded retail stores, once they opened Sony stores, and we know Apple followed that playbook with Apple stores, that is how they were able to build really a high-quality brand recognition. People came to Sony stores tried out their products in person, and then made those purchase decisions rather than simply trying to sell through word of mouth. Having that physical presence led to people actually converting a little bit more often. And it even created that real-world, high-quality brand awareness. I think we've seen kind of a similar thing play out with many 
of the D2C companies. Those are the direct-to-consumer companies that started, I think it was 10, 15 years ago, we saw the wave of them start like Allbirds or Casper or Warby Parker. And these were companies that really rode the wave of e-commerce. They were able to sell to the masses online. But now we've seen over the last five years or so, all of these companies have been quickly opening up physical stores in shopping malls, in real retail stores. And I think we're seeing this same thing play out. There is some sort of real value to having a physical presence. Whether it is a mail order ad in private, you as an individual at your home are able to look at the mail order ad and it has a certain coupon. That coupon could be tracked for conversion and it sits on your counter and slowly you see it again and again. It builds up a memory, a cognitive referent for you. Or if it's simply these D2C brands that exist online, but when you're walking around your favorite mall, you keep walking by the store and you build that association to their brand, these are things that may lead to more and more purchases. So I think these are initial ideas that were formed by Claude Hopkins, but these were just a few of my slight takeaways as a far observer, the 30,000 foot view, not even in the advertising industry, but these were just a few takeaways that I see how his insights from the early 1900s apply to our modern world today. So I want to tell you about a few more of Hopkins' core insights, and then I will close off with the essence of scientific advertising. So the next core insight I want to tell you about is that you must capture their attention quickly. You capture the customer's attention quickly. And the way you do that is with a great headline. He would say, people will not be bored in print. They may listen politely at a dinner table to boasts and personalities, life history, etc., but in print, they choose their own companions, their own subjects. They want to be amused or benefited. They want economy, beauty, labor-saving, good things to eat, or wear. So he describes how he will spend hours and hours on a headline because that itself could lead to a huge improvement, like a 5 to 10x improvement on the number of people who try his product. And we know, again, he's always trying to appeal to that simplest, most desired quality. He's always trying to see what do people deeply, deeply desire, whether it's beauty or status or losing weight, eating something great, whatever it may be, what do they really, really desire out of this product? And how can I convey that in the headline alone? And even though a lot of these things can seem simple, when you read a five, seven, eight word headline, it could seem very simple. But in reality, there could be weeks and weeks, hours and hours of thought that goes into it. To advertise toothpaste, this writer has also read many volumes of scientific matter dry as dust. But in the middle of one volume, he found the idea which has helped make millions for the toothpaste maker and has made this campaign one of the sensations of advertising. Genius is the art of taking pains. The advertising man who spares the midnight oil will never get very far. Claude Hopkins believes you must work hard in the dark to shine in the light. He is willing to go through this incredibly boring information, like he said, reading through volumes of scientific matter as dry as dust in this toothpaste example to find that one thing that his customers will most deeply value. So you study your customers deeply and you find over time that simple thing that is going to stand out to the people who are looking at your product. This is what will grab their attention so quickly. The uninformed would be staggered 
to know the amount of work involved in a single ad. Weeks of work sometimes. The ad seems so simple, and it must be simple to appeal to simple people. But behind that ad may lie reams of data, volumes of information, and months of research. So this is no lazy man's field. Once Hopkins has conquered this headline to grab your attention, next he thinks about the mental impression in the body of the ad that can make you better understand why this ad will be so valuable in your life. The product itself should be its own best salesman. Not the product alone, but the product plus a mental impression and atmosphere which you place around it. I think the best way to visualize this atmosphere or mental impression around the products is with Akio Morita's Sony products. We spoke about on the Sony episode how Akio Morita, he discovered that it is not simply about making a great product, but it's also about showing customers how they could actually benefit in their day-to-day lives by using that product, showing them the real best features that they will benefit from with this new product. In two ways that we know Akio Morita was able to do this, the first was when he created the pocketable transistor radio. He demonstrated that radio device by putting the pocketable radio in his shirt pocket. And that was able to show people Look how simple it's going to be to walk around with my pocketable radio and listen to my favorite tunes as it's just sitting in my shirt pocket. As we discussed on that episode, that is something that Steve Jobs later emulated with the iPod as well. He had the famous phrase, a thousand songs in your pocket. And he was able to show the iPod can fit quite easily in your jeans pocket as you're walking around you have your thousand favorite songs just right up in your ear. Now, the next way that Akio Morita also did this great mental impression added to the product was with their new VCR technology. We know with the VCR recording TV programs, he noticed that TV is this great invention, but if you happen to be busy when your favorite show is playing, Let's say it's a Thursday night at 6 p.m. and your favorite show is playing and you happen to be busy at that one set time, well, that means you simply would miss your favorite show. Who wants to miss their favorite show, right? So the VCR, the appeal of it to customers is that you could record your favorite shows and watch it later. But Akio Morita, he had to create this very convincing and easy to remember mental impression that people would understand the real easy value of VCR technology. And the way he did that was that he described the VCR is like a magazine. You can flip through it on your own schedule. The benefit of having a magazine is that you could flip through and read different sections of the magazine whenever you want. You have no type of time constraint. But we know the old TV technology there was a time constraint. So Akio Morita, with this mental impression, he was showing us, I have removed all time constraints. Now you can watch TV at your leisure. You can watch your favorite shows whenever you want. So these were ideas, advertising ideas, originally thought up again by Claude Hopkins. He's thinking, you want to have a great product, but don't just stop there. Take the product and create a mental impression, a way to show it to your customers so they truly understand the end use case. So I think we're now ready to discuss the essence of Claude Hopkins' scientific advertising. This really hones in on his combination of all these insights and tools that we've talked about so far, getting to the central point of simply tracking your conversions much more precisely in going through those A-B tests. 
as you're able to track more accurately over time, you're able to create much more effective advertising campaigns. Now we let the thousands decide what the millions will do. We make a small venture and watch cost and result. When we learn what a thousand customers cost, we know almost exactly what a million will cost. When we learn what they buy, we know what a million will buy. So this was how he was able to create these massive national campaigns for huge new consumer brands. He would run test campaigns with a thousand people or a few thousand people. And then he sees which ones are the ones that perform spectacularly. And those are the ones that he pushes out to the millions of people. In five years for one food advertiser, we tried out over 50 separate plans. Every little while, we found an improvement. So the results of our advertising constantly grew. They were growing 1% every day. At the end of five years, we found the best plan of all. It reduced our cost of selling by 75%. That is, it was four times more effective than the best plan used before. I think a lot of people would go through a couple test campaigns, advertising campaigns, and probably would just be happy once they see one of them is performing pretty well. Well, we see that is not the mentality that Claude Hopkins had. He was someone that was willing to go above and beyond, use his scientific advertising methods to extreme lengths, and even test 50 different campaigns in the span of five years to find this perfect ad, this ad that could be repeated again and again. And once you find it, you see that your ad is potentially four or five times more effective than any other ad you created. That huge increase in conversions leads to so much more revenue in customers at the end of the day. So I think this is really why this book was so prescient. It is a book that before the internet, before it was really easy to track conversions, now with the internet, there's much simpler ways to track conversions and through those direct response ads like Facebook. Now you can see people are able to track conversions, but back then, this is a hundred years ago, he was thinking up these principles that no one had really imagined before. And he was confused. Why isn't everyone else like me? It makes no sense not to take this scientific advertising approach. Again, we come back to scientific advertising. Suppose a chemist would say in an arbitrary way that this compound was best or that better. You would little respect his opinion. He makes tests, sometimes hundreds of tests, to actually know which is best. He will never state a supposition before he has proved it. How long before advertisers in general will apply that exactness to advertising? Claude Hopkins is willing to go that extra link, do what none of his competitors were doing back then to test tens of different campaigns and see which ads are most effective. We know he has so many different strategies that he can employ across those campaigns. Maybe one of them is with free coupons. One of them may be really appealing to that one beauty desire or whatever desire he's seeking out. Another could be describing the process in detail, like his Schlitz beer campaign. But he will try so many different advertising campaigns until he finds the one that has that great conversion. And then that's the one that he's going to hammer home to the millions. That's the one that he has this deep confidence in. He looks around, he sees all his peers, and he sees they're doing things completely wrong. He shared, we see countless ads running year after year, which we know 
to be unprofitable. Men spending $5 to do what $1 might do. Men getting back 30% of their cost when they might get 150%. And the facts could be easily proved. We see wasted space, clever concepts, and entertainment. But the ads are always unkeyed. They can't track it. The money is spent blindly, merely to satisfy some advertising whim. What he knows is that his peers, everyone around him, need scientific advertising. They will benefit if they take up his approach. As he says, enormous advertising is being done along scientific lines. We who can meet the test welcome these changed conditions. Advertisers will multiply when they see that advertising can be safe and sure. This is such a great line. Small expenditures made on a guess will grow to big ones on a certainty. Small expenditures made on a guess will grow to big ones on a certainty. Our line of business will be finer, cleaner when the gamble is removed, and we shall be prouder of it when we are judged on merit. I think that's the perfect place to wrap up Claude Hopkins' legendary book, Scientific Advertising. As I've discussed throughout this episode, there are so many really timeless lessons. This book was written a hundred years ago and has since inspired many of the great advertisers over the past five, six, seven decades to take up the same principles that Claude Hopkins originally wrote about. We've spoken about some of the simpler principles like finding your ideal customer, appealing to how they will benefit their simple, deep-held desires, and some of the more advanced topics like tracking through scientific advertising techniques or describing the process in detail, using the word free in coupons or samples to attract long-term customers. So this has been a great learning experience for me. I think advertising applies to all of our lives, whether you're trying to sell a product in your business or simply even selling your story to a potential employer, you have to understand kind of some of these very basic rules of advertising. And a book like this, a timeless book like scientific advertising, certainly gives us some great principles that I think we could all rely on for decades to come. I hope you learned a lot from this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend. That would be amazing. And thank you again for listening.